make that happen. Um, you ready? All right, John 16. The Gospel of John, chapter 16. It is a, it, it's an edifying thing to me to hear us sing songs like the last one we just sang, to sing out very specifically what we believe, and to hear us uh, recite out the Apostles' Creed, which says very specifically the main things that we believe. And I hope that you feel the same way each week as we sing songs like that and, and do readings like that, that as believers, uh, we never get bored of thinking about the things we truly hold dear and believe. And so um, I want to give you a quote from uh, John Knox, who was a Scottish reformer and started the Presbyterian Church in Scotland back in the 1500s. John Knox said, let no day slip over without some comfort received from the mouth of God. Let no day slip over or slip by without some comfort received from the mouth of God. And I saw that quote this week and I thought that's very appropriate for every day, but especially on the Lord's Day as we gather together, uh, it's my prayer this morning that there would be comfort from these words for for whatever need you might have as you come into this place this morning. So in John 16, we're going to read verses 1 through 15, and you're going to notice it's very similar to last week's text over in chapter 15, but um, certainly some things we can learn here. So in John 16, if you found verse 1, say word. These things have I spoken unto you, that you should not be offended. They shall put you out of the synagogues. Yes, the time cometh that whosoever killeth you will think that he doeth God's service. And these things will they do unto you because they have not known the Father nor me. But these things have I told you that when the time shall come, you may remember that I told you of them. And these things I said not unto you at the beginning, because I was with you. But now I go away to him that sent me, and none of you asketh me, Whither goest thou? But because I have said these things unto you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart... I will send him unto you. And when he has come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin, because they believe not on me. Of righteousness, because I go to my Father and you see me no more. Of judgment, because the prince of this world is judged. I have yet many things to say unto you, but you cannot bear them now. Howbeit, when he, the Spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth, for he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak. He will show you things to come. 
He shall glorify me, for he shall receive of mine, and shall show it unto you. All things that the Father hath are mine. Therefore said I that he shall take of mine, and shall show it unto you. Verse 16, a little while and you shall not see me, and again a little while because you shall see me, because I go to the Father. I'm going to give you two main points in the sermon, and as I was studying it and trying to make an outline for it, I was thinking it's so similar to last week. And of course, we understand that the verse divisions in our Bible and the chapter divisions are, you know, were put there much later. They're not inspired uh, like the scripture is, but they're helpful. But 15 and 16, of course, are the same conversation. They flow together. But if you remember last week, we talked about a warning that the disciples would be persecuted and then a comfort that they would have the Holy Spirit there to guide them and help them. And as you read this passage, as I read this passage, I really see the same thing. There's this first part about adversity and persecution, and then the second part is again about the, the help of the Holy Spirit. And so I hope we can take away um, my sermon in a sentence this morning, which is, you can remain faithful in the face of adversity by the help of the Holy Spirit. So our first main point is the first part of that. You can see it here. You and I, as believers, can remain faithful to God even in the face of great adversity. I'm sorry, that should say verse 1 through 4, not 1 through 40. My bad. So look at verse 1, where Jesus says, These things have I spoken unto you, that you should not be offended. Now when we read that and think about the word offended, we think, about, we think of it a little bit differently here. Um, do you think Jesus really cared if he offended people when he spoke? <laughs> I don't think he really cared about that, did he? Uh, he just spoke the truth. Later on in this passage, Jesus says, I tell you the truth. I also find that interesting. Does that mean the rest of the time he wasn't telling the truth? No, of course not. He's just saying, listen closely right here. This is some truth coming. But this word, offended, is also could be translated to stumble or to fall over something, to fall back, to fall down. Um, I, I thought about how you ever walk through your house, parents, and trip over a kid's toy. Have you ever done this? I've tripped over a kid's toy before in such a way that it hurt that I opened the front door and slung the toy out, the, out in the yard. You ever done that? I've done that. There goes the toy out in the yard. And the kid's like, why is my toy out in the yard? I don't know. I don't know how I got there. Because I tripped over it. I, I didn't see it coming. I'm walking through the house. I don't see it coming. I trip over it. I'm in pain. I'm offended. I'm stumbling. The word here actually is a similar word that we get the word scandal from. And so it's this idea of something negative happening, something bad happening. And Jesus says, I'm saying these words to you, and I've just said some words to you, so that you will not stumble, you will not fall. You see, Jesus gives them a heads up. They're not going to be walking through the house and stumble over something that they don't know is already coming. Because he is telling them here, there's persecution coming your way. There are, there are hard times coming your way, is what he's telling these disciples. Someone said that, that Jesus here is like a wise general. He's not concealing from his soldiers the campaign that lay before them, but instead he is plainly in love and faithfulness telling them trials will come. And the quote ends like this, Jesus 
wisely forewarns them that the cross was the way to the crown. So they are plainly seeing here the words of Christ that says, I'm telling you these things, remember these things so that you will not stumble, that you will not fall, you will not shrink away when the hard times come. Now, I want to make an application here that I think we can apply to us. Um, we understand that true believers in Christ can never truly fall away, right? We believe, we hold to the truth of the perseverance of the saints, eternal security. If someone is truly a Christian, they can never stop being a Christian. First of all, they would never want to, would they? Second of all, salvation is a free gift from God. It's not ours to lose, is it? It's His to give. And when He saves a soul, that soul is always saved. As a matter of fact, in our Confession of Faith, the 13th article is on the perseverance of the saints. And it says, We that are real believers will endure to the end. It says, Their persevering attachment to Christ is the grand mark which distinguishes them from superficial professors who are not truly saved. We believe God's special providence watches over their welfare and that they are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation. So we know and we hold true that believers can never fall away from Christ. But we also hold true to this. We can, we can fall down. <laughs> we can stumble. We can go through certain things in our lives that might cause us to, to even shy away from our faith at times, as sad as that might be, right? I mean, only a very short time after Jesus is saying these words, the boldest of the disciples, which is who? The spokesman for the disciples, Simon Peter, is going to be walking around, and they're going to say, aren't you the guy that was with Jesus? And what's he going to do? Not me. How many times does he deny Christ? Three times. And in one, I mean, just deny, deny, deny. And so certainly these disciples, just as we are, are prone to wander away from God. And that might happen because of sin in our lives, but also in this context, Jesus is saying, don't let persecution cause you to fall away. Don't let it cause you to, to stumble. I was thinking about the fact that if we flip over to the book of Acts, and we won't do it this morning, but if you go to the book of Acts and you look at all the things that happened with these disciples, the things Jesus says here in this verse, or in verse 2 especially, begins to come true. It begins to come true. This, Jesus is actually prophesying here what's going to happen, and of course it does come to pass. Now I was thinking about how, how we really can't understand the type of stuff that happens in the book of Acts. If, if, if there was phones back in those days and we had, you know, footage on Twitter of what happened in the book of Acts and people are out there videoing it with their phones, we would be amazed and terrified at the different parts of the book of Acts. Amazed in Acts 2 when the Holy Spirit falls and thousands are saved. Amazed at how the church grows, but also terrified when people are persecuted and killed for their faith. And we've seen some of that. We've seen that in movies and even in real news footage in other country with terrorists and things like that. But let me give you two examples. In the book of Acts, we read about Stephen. You remember how Stephen died? They wanted Stephen to refute his faith, and he gives this like, I don't know, is it 60, 80? It's like this huge chapter of him like, I'm not going to refute my faith. I'm going to preach to you. <laughs> and they stone him to death. How about 
James. James, the brother of John. We read there that he is killed with the sword for his faith. I think about that because James, with Peter, James, and John, those three seem to be an inner circle with Christ a lot of times. And how do these disciples feel when early on in the growth of the church, one of the main guys is killed? I wonder if they thought back to these words Jesus said. Look at verse 2. They shall put you out of the synagogues. Yes, the time comes that whoever kills you will think that they're doing the service of God. One thing that stuck out to me as I read this is a lot of people believe the prosperity gospel today. If you watch Christian TV, you'll see that a lot. Which The prosperity gospel says, God just wants you to be healthy and wealthy and everything's going to be fine. Just send us your $1,000 and it'll be fine. That's what they say, right? Well, Jesus smashes that here. Does that seem like he's gonna, they're going to be healthy and wealthy? He says first, they're going to kick you out of the synagogue. Now, this doesn't happen much in our day, you know, church discipline to this degree. Um, but if it did, if for some reason the church said, this person has sinned in such a way and refused to repent of that sin, they're no longer a member of our church, what could that person do in our day? They could literally go right down the road in any direction and, and find a new church to probably join right in with. What a lot of people do in that situation, if that were to happen, is to go to a really big church and just kind of blend in, you know. But even if nowadays what happens in our culture is you just don't like your church or you get mad at your church or whatever, you know there are options all around. It's a buffet of churches, right? But in their context, to be kicked out of the synagogue or excommunicated out of the synagogue was a really, really big deal. They couldn't just go right down the road to the next one. And it would be an embarrassment to their family and to, to them. It was a big deal for Jesus to say, you're going to be kicked out of the synagogue. But then he takes it up a notch because he says, the people who kill you are going to think they're doing it in the name of God. Now, I think Jesus can say this very openly and honestly because who were the very people who mistreated Jesus? The religious, right? Chiefs, chief priests, high priests, Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes, the very ones who mistreated Christ and who in just a few, in a chapter or two here, are going to arrest him and put him through unfair trials and condemn him to death. These were mostly religious people. Most of them claiming to be doing the work of God as they crucify the Son of God. And Jesus says, don't be surprised. Here's a heads up. When they excommunicate you and when they kill your brothers or even you, they, they think they're doing the work of God by doing so. What a, what a statement that had to be. What a statement that had to be. Disciple, as I just, imagine Jesus looking at them. Though you are serving the one true God and me spreading the gospel of the Son of God, they're going to kill you in the name of a God they claim to know. What a heads up for, from Christ. Verse 3, he says, But they don't know the Father, 
nor do they know me. They don't know the Father, they don't know me. They have a form of religion, but they don't know God. I think this is a obviously a, a great warning for these disciples, but also just for the church today. The idea that um, we might have a form of religion, but not the power that goes with it. Um, that's probably a, an, a, I don't know, an epidemic or a pandemic in the church culture, whatever those words fits, that we, we feel like we have a little bit of religion and that's enough to get us to heaven or make us a Christian, but we don't have God, a true relationship with God. I've told you about the sermon that uh, Paul Washer preached back in the early 2000s. Some of you have probably seen the YouTube video. Paul Washer is a preacher and a missionary. He went to this youth conference. I think there were about 5,000 people there. And he's kind of a, you know, no-nonsense guy. He did his work in Peru and other countries like that. And so he's, he's wearing a nice button-down shirt and khakis and belt and just looks nice. And he's out in the crowd, and he tells that during the music portion of the, of the service, the youth come up and form a mosh pit in the front. And he said him and his wife were getting, like, ran into. Um, I'm surprised he didn't punch somebody and get kicked out, but knowing Paul Washer. He gets up to preach. And he says, the problem with the American church is uh, you think because you said a prayer that you're going to heaven. And he says, where's the godliness? Where's the people who love God and who make it a part of their lives? And he, he says so, much other, so many other things like that. And he kind of ramps up his preaching and, and continues to say the, the greatest heresy in the American church is this idea that you can pray a prayer and then you're, you're automatically going to heaven. And he, he ramps this up and ramps it up and ramps it up. And he says, we need people who truly trust Christ and this, that, and the other. And the whole crowd starts cheering. You know, it's, it's woo and it's clapping. They're cheering. It's loud. He takes a few steps forward and he points and says, I don't know why you're clapping. I'm talking about you. He points to the crowd and says that. And all of a sudden, 5,000 people go, And he goes on to preach this sermon, which I think lasted an hour, on true Christianity. And so I give you that illustration to say, for all of us in this place, for all of us listening to this, we need to examine our lives and say, do I just have a form of religion or do I have Christ? Do I truly have a relationship with God through Christ? Do we know him in the, as Paul said, in the power of his suffering, the power of his resurrection, and do we long to know him more? The people Jesus is talking about, the people that are going to persecute these disciples, they don't know the Father, and they don't know Christ. Verse 4. In verse 4 he says, I'm telling you these things so that when the time comes and you face great adversity, you will remember what I've told you. And in remembering, you will face your adversity with fearlessness or faithfulness, even fruitfulness. And church, we know, don't we? That's what these men did. They were fearless, they were faithless, they were fruitful. Fearless, faithful, and fruitful in the face of adversity. Let's move to the second part. The first part is you can remain faithful to Christ through great adversity, 
The second part is you can only remain faithful to Christ with the help of the Holy Spirit. I wonder if we really understand how important this point is. Or are we trying to live the Christian life just by coming to the building, hanging out, singing some songs, reading some verses? Or do we understand the importance of the Holy Spirit? I hope you'll think in the next few minutes just about the importance of God the Spirit as we look at these next verses. So in verse 5, he kind of gives a little, um, kind of a negative talk here where he kind of points out something to him. He says, but now I go my way to him that sent me, and none of you asks, you know, where am I going? And as I read verse 5, I thought to myself, that's not true, because at least two other times, I think Simon Peter and maybe even Thomas, I think two other disciples at some point asked Jesus, where are you going? So what did he mean? We know this is still true. We know he's not telling a lie. What did Jesus mean when he said, nobody's asking where I'm going? Well, here's what I think he means. I think he means that they are so overcome with grief. If you look at verse 6, sorrow has filled their hearts. They're so overcome with sadness about him leaving that they are unable to ask the right question or to ask it in the right way, which is, Jesus, where are you going and why are you going there and, and what does that mean for you? They're more thinking about, what does this mean for us? Are we left behind? Our master's gone. And he says, you're not asking the right question with the right motivation in the right way. But I'm not being too hard on the disciples. As I read verse 5 and 6, you know, how do we do when how do we do when uh, we get bad news? You ever, got a, you ever received a terrible phone call? Or had got bad news? Sometimes we zone out. Or sometimes we aren't able to think clearly for a day or a season of life. And I think that's what's happening with them. They're hearing so much here in these chapters. And some of it is comforting and some of it is not. And it's probably traumatic for them. And so they're having a difficult thing at grasping it. But look at verse 7, which I think is kind of the pivotal verse here. Nevertheless, I'll tell you the truth. It is expedient, or it is to your advantage, that I go away. Jesus says, if I don't go away, the comforter that you need will not come. But if I depart, I'll send him to you. Now again, let's put ourselves in their place. How could it be better for Jesus to leave them, right? He has taught them the greatest truth they've ever heard. He has performed miracles. He's provided for them. He has loved them. They've, they've given up their lives, haven't they, for three years to, to follow him. How is it better for him to leave? Well, he tells them, through their sorrow, through maybe some confusion here, through some probably some doubt, he says, your advantage is that I will send the Holy Spirit. We understand the advantage of Christ going to the cross for us, right? It was to our advantage that he went to the cross. 
for the forgiveness of our sins. We understand how it's to our advantage that he rose from the dead. As he rose from the dead, we will rise from the dead. But do we understand how it is to our advantage that he ascended to heaven? He ascended that he might send the helper, the comforter, the Holy Spirit. Well, let's talk about the Holy Spirit for a minute. Um, this God, the third person of the Trinity, who we often, I think, neglect, right, because charismatic groups um, have taken him and, I guess, claimed him as their own. And so we kind of neglect the Holy Spirit in our lives, but we just sang about it. We believe in God the Father, we believe in the Son, and we believe in the Holy Spirit. So the word Holy Spirit here, the word for the Holy Spirit is the word paraclete. And this word means to come along and help someone, to come along and aid someone, to guide or be there for someone. And you'll notice if you have a different uh, Bible translation that it might, be, it might be defined as comforter, helper, advocate. There's so many different words used to describe the Holy Spirit and those are all good words. It's because, just as we would say about God the Father and God the Son, you can't define them in a word, right? Or any of our words. But the Holy Spirit, let me give you a few examples. He's like a counselor who comes to help you when you need good counsel. He's like a teacher who reveals to you the truth when you don't know the truth. He's like a doctor who comes beside you to point out your sickness. He is an advocate who comes to your aid when aid is needed. He is like a good Samaritan who comes in time of need. It's no wonder different Bible translations took that Greek word and used different words because all these things apply to the Holy Spirit. Let me give you a few things about him. I'm going to give you three if you want to jot them down. The first thing about the Holy Spirit, he is personal. The Holy Spirit is not an it. We should not say, well, the Holy Spirit... It really, it's really been working on me. We, the Holy Spirit is a he. Personal. I actually got into a mini Facebook debate the other day. I didn't really intend to because someone had said uh, God was genderless, basically, and said we shouldn't call God he. And I was like, well, he is, he is the Father. He is the Son. He is the Holy Spirit. So what's the Bible say? I'm just going to show you one verse. Verse 13. Look at it with me. And I'm going to show you two verses. I'm going to do verse 13 and 14. How be it when he, the spirit of truth has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak. And he will show you things to come. He shall glorify me, for he shall receive of mine and shall show it unto you. And I don't say this, by the way, to, uh, it's not even about, what I, the point I'm making is not even about you know, masculinity and femininity, femininity, whatever that word is. The point I'm making is, God the Spirit is personal. He's personal. Christ said, I'm going away, and then I'm sending the Spirit, and the Spirit is going to live Where? In us, indwelling us. So why is it better for us? Why is it to our advantage that 
Christ goes away. Why is it for the disciples' advantage that Christ goes away? We want you right here with us. Well, when he went away and the Holy Spirit came in full power, the Holy Spirit lived in all of them as they spread out through the whole world and all other believers. So the Holy Spirit was not just in one place. It was moving through its people, his people, taking the word of God, enlightening the word of God, making the word of God powerful as it was preached. It's been a long time since I've read anything from Shakespeare. I guess probably since I was in school. I have no desire to read anything from Shakespeare unless I'm in school, I guess. But if you enjoy that type of reading, and that's fine. If you do, it's great. You can read it. You can know it. You can become an expert. You can go get a Ph.D. in Shakespearean. But you can never have a personal relationship with Shakespeare. Can't do it, can you? Well, we can read the Word of God and know it and have a personal relationship with God because the Holy Spirit indwells believers like us. Not only should we, but our greatest relationship, Christian, should be with God. My greatest relationship in my life by far is with my wife. All right? We spend a lot of time together. We, as you with probably your spouse, you tell them things you might not tell anybody else. You're that close. Your wife or your husband or your children, I'm sure, are your closest relationships or maybe a best friend. But my relationship with God through the Spirit in me should be my greatest relationship. Do we know Him that close? Do we know him that close in a, in a way that when we hear the preaching or we read the word, he is showing us the truth? Do we know him that close that when we sin, we have that conviction of sin? Or when he convicts our heart and says, that's not what you need to be doing, do we ignore him, push him to the side? If my wife gave me great advice on something and I just push it to the side and then I fell into something wrong, I, I just missed my opportunity, right? For someone who told me good advice. When the Holy Spirit convicts me, I need to yield to that conviction. That's what he does, by the way. Look at the second thing. He is active. He is actively, in verses 8 through 11, it says he is convicting the world, convicting the world of sin. It talks here about how, as it verse 9, where it says they don't know God, they reject Christ. So he convicts the world of sin. He convicts them of righteousness and of judgment, speaking of the ruler of the world, Satan, and all who will follow him. And we see this played out in the book of Acts as the Holy Spirit moves through the people of God. He is active in not only convicting, but he's active in illuminating truth. Let me say this. The Holy Spirit does not bring new revelation or special revelation to an individual. If someone ever says, and you've heard this, I've heard this many times over the years, God told me, blank. As soon as you hear God told me, you should be very cautious of that. For me, if someone says God told me, I'm more than cautious. I'm not going to believe anything they say, unless it comes straight from the Bible. That's not what the Holy Spirit does, even though many people try to say that. Hey, I've said that before. Some of us have said that before. 
God told me this. Well, if God, unless a thing is in the Bible, God did not tell you that thing. Well, that's how I see it. This is the word, and the, and the scripture even says, don't take my word for it. Look at verse 15. All things that the Father hath are mine, therefore said I that he shall take of mine and show it unto you. The Spirit shows us the Word, shows us Christ. As a matter of fact, that's all the Spirit does is point us to Jesus. Other, in certain places in Scripture, He is called the Spirit of Christ. So closely related that they're obviously separate, but also still somehow one. The Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, it's mentioned in Scripture. It's, again, it's, a, it's the great mystery of the Trinity, three and one. Verse 14 and 15 says he is active in glorifying Christ. So he's active, the Holy Spirit's active in convicting of sin. He's active in illuminating the word and pointing us to Christ. Finally, the third thing there, the Holy Spirit is effective. If God the Holy Spirit comes to your heart to regenerate your sinful heart, He will not be stopped. He is effective. He doesn't knock at the door or whatever and just chill and wait. When God's Holy Spirit indwells us, He overcomes our sin. He's not only effective in our salvation, He is effective in the work of the church. I heard about a story that happened just before World War II. In Ethiopia, these missionaries had gone there and they'd won a few people to Christ. And because of the war, they were ejected or kicked out of Ethiopia. And so they're kicked out of Ethiopia. They're so worried that these new believers they just won to Christ are going to just fall away, right? It's going to be, they're going to have persecution. They're not going to have the mature believers to disciple them. So 25 years later, 25 years later, some missionaries go back expecting to start over because the church probably died out with those immature believers. And when the missionaries went back, guess what they found? A thriving church. It's almost as if the Word of God and the Holy Spirit can do just fine. And they were blown away that these believers had gotten the Word led by the Spirit and grew a thriving church in the midst of persecution. One more illustration, and then we'll conclude. I once heard a pastor named David Platt give a similar, similar illustration to that. And he talked about going overseas to do a youth Bible study. And it was one of these endangered countries, so he had to be snuck in. You know, he had to be snuck into this place. And he did all-week lesson on New Testament survey. He talked through the New Testament. And here's how the youth camp went, which is different than the youth camps in America. They would go in this dark room with one light bulb hanging down, basically. Dark, dingy room at the bottom of a hut or a house of some kind. And 
at 8 a.m., they would start to pray. And at 9 a.m., they would have Bible teaching. They'd break for lunch, come back for Bible teaching all day. At the end of the day, they would close in prayer, go rest, and they would do it again the next day. That's so different than camps, by the way, today in, in our youth because we play seven hours and have one hour of worship service. And so Platt did this, and he came back to America to tell people about the experience because these were 15, 16, 17, 18-year-old kids who would come and pray for hours and wanted to hear the Word so bad. They're like, don't leave us. Stay and teach us more about God's Word. We're not like that, are we? Uh, our adults aren't like that. Our adults are like, 11.30, about time to wrap it up, right? Got to go, got to beat the crowd to Mitoro. But these people are like, we want to, these are teenagers. Stay and teach us, don't leave, stay. David Platt came back to America. He's telling people the story. Somebody came up to him and said, Pastor, we want to help. And, and that sounds pitiful what they have over there. We're going to raise money in our church, and we're going to send a worship leader, a really good singer, a guitar player. We're going to get you some uh, lights that you can put up down there so they can have kind of like a stage lights. We can send people to build a little stage so you can have these things and those things. and We can send a whole band if you want it that can play the music they need and this, that, and the other. And David Platt looked around and said, you know, I think the Holy Spirit's doing just fine over there. And he said, we might be better off if we didn't depend on all those other things either. Stages and lights and fancy music. What if we just depended on the Holy Spirit? So church, we can remain faithful in the face of great adversity. Whether it's persecution for us this morning, whether it's sin we're dealing with, whether it's just a struggle, as a believer, we can remain faithful. How? With the help of God, the Holy Spirit. We're going to sing a song after, after I pray. It's called, Yet Not I, But Christ Through Me. As we sing the song, I want you to think about the words. Am I living in my own power, my own strength? Or is it Christ through the Holy Spirit living in me? Let's pray.